Happy Sabbath, and it's a privilege to be here again before Advent Hope, and I am also thankful to report that my wife, Joelle, will be back in two days. She's been gone for 18. I've been counting, obviously, and it can get kind of lonely You get used to being married, and you take for granted the blessing that it is sometimes. But the Lord has been blessing what she has been doing. They've already had five baptisms in the campaign she's been preaching down in Brazil. They have another five scheduled for tonight, and they expect more to follow. So she's had a great blessing preaching the truths of the Adventist faith to the people down in Brazil. And today is her last day to speak. And I'm speaking here, so by the grace of God, we're ministering for God together. And it's a blessing to have a wife who is committed to the Adventist message. Before we start, I'd like to have a word of prayer, and we will get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you, and I pray that you would send your spirit in a very special way. Please speak through me. May I be lost sight of, and may this message be clear and compelling. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. You know, the fact that my wife is actually down in Brazil giving the truth of the Adventist message to people down there is a testimony to the fact that we have a worldwide message. Our message is not for just Loma Linda, although it certainly is for Loma Linda, but it's also for every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And so I am very thankful to be part of a group of people that has a worldwide message. And we have a prophetic message. And for those of you who may have been paying attention, two days ago on Thursday was October 22, 2009, and if you're counting years, that's 165 years since 1844, and it's four years since the birth of Audioverse. Praise God for Audioverse. <clears throat> we have a prophetic message, we have a worldwide message, and That prophetic message is, of course, found in the books of Daniel and Revelation. And in the book, Testimonies to Ministers, page 114, this is a famous statement where Ellen White says, when the books of Daniel and Revelation are better understood, believers will have an entirely different religious experience. They will be given such glimpses of the open gates of heaven that heart and mind will be impressed with a character that all must develop in order to realize the blessedness which is to be the reward of the pure in heart. Do we really have a glimpse of the open gates of heaven? Have you thought about what it will be like to walk through the gates into heaven to see Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords as your Savior? Do you think about that? Or is the only thing you're thinking about is your next day in class or your next day at work? We as God's people should be studying this prophetic message so that we can catch a glimpse 
of what heaven will be like because when we get to heaven, heaven will be our home, and we should feel like we belong there. But if we're never thinking about our home, we probably wouldn't feel like we belong there. And so we should be studying and thinking about our home. We want to catch a glimpse of the glory of heaven and of Jesus Christ who is there, who has made a way possible for us to have that experience. Amen? So we have a prophetic message. We have a message that is worldwide in nature, and it will be to the very close of time. And that message is based on the Word of God. And so I'm thankful for this Word for which we can base our faith upon. It guides every decision of our lives and of everything that we believe. And so today we are going to study from the Word of God our prophetic message. Amen? Amen. So today I felt impressed by the Lord to share on where we are in prophecy based on Revelation 17. And so we are going to look at Revelation 17. Now, Revelation 17 is not light bread. I'll admit that. But it's good for us to get into the meat of God's Word, amen? So we're going to look at Revelation 17. And Revelation 17 could, in a nutshell, be entitled The Judgment of Babylon. And so we're going to look at this. And in Revelation chapter 17, starting in verse 1, it says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And then verse 3, So he carried me away in the Spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, I'm going to assume that you understand certain symbols, so I'm not going to take time to explain basic symbols. I'm going to mention them in passing. A woman in the Bible represents a church, and a beast in the Bible represents a kingdom. So here you have a kingdom, which is a political power, with a woman, which is a religious power. So here you have union of church and state, a woman and a beast, the woman sitting on the beast. Now notice, this is described saying this woman sitting upon a beast is full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, there are other places in the book of Revelation that describe a similar beast, and in fact, in Revelation 13, you will see this. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Okay? Do you see the, the, the parallel? Revelation 17, a woman on a beast that has seven heads, ten horns, full of names of blasphemy. Revelation 13, you have a beast that has seven heads and ten horns with the names of blasphemy. Do you see the, the connection? Is that clear? So, if you look at Revelation 17, 
The way to understand Revelation 17 is to connect it to Revelation 13. Revelation 13, you have a beast with seven heads and ten horns that has names of blasphemy. Revelation 17, you have a beast with seven heads, ten horns, with the names of blasphemy. So, and based on the fact that you have a woman sitting on the beast, this describes a picture of a union of church and state. And in verse 2, it talks about how the kings of the earth have committed fornication with this power. That, of course, is unlawful spiritual union with this power. In verse 4, it's interesting. You look at the description of this woman. Of this woman. I'm not going to read the verse, but everything, the clothing and everything, the one thing it's interesting, if you look in the Old Testament, the description of the priestly garments, the colors and the descriptions are similar. The priestly garment has the color of blue, but this power is lacking that. And it's interesting, in the book of Numbers 15, verses 38 and 39, God tells His people that the color of blue on their garments was to point them to the law of God. So this entity, the beast that has seven heads and ten horns, full of the name of blasphemy, a woman riding a beast or a union of church and state, a religious power with a political power, is lacking in the law of God. So I'm moving quickly here, and as we move along, we see in verse 5 that the name of this entity, in verse 5 says, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about Babylon. Revelation 17 and the first beast of Revelation 13 are describing Babylon. And what is so bad about Babylon that she would be the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth? Verse 6 tells us, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. So this power, Babylon, is drunken with the blood of the saints. So that's obviously a persecuting power against God's people. And in verse 7, the angel tells John, why did you marvel? I'm going to tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast. And in verse 18, he tells him what the woman is. It's the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And if you look in Revelation 17, there's only one city that's named, and that's the city of Babylon. So the woman is Babylon in its religious aspect. And verses 8 through 17 describe the political arm of Babylon. And we're going to look at this. <clears throat> so starting in verse 8, the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now, if you study Revelation carefully, you will see that there is similar language in Revelation 13 as in Revelation 17, verse 8. Notice it talks about the beast that you saw was and is not, that means it used to be and right now it's not. Something happened to it. 
but it's going to come back, it will go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder. Do you remember a verse in Revelation 13 that sounds very similar to that? Revelation 13 verse 3 says, speaking of this beast that has seven heads and ten horns, that's the same beast in Revelation 17, it says, and I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now, Revelation 17, 8 says, they that dwell on the earth shall wander towards this beast. Revelation 13 says, all the world shall wander after the beast. And in verse 8, it says, of thir- chapter 13, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of the of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So there you have similar language to they that dwell on the earth in Revelation 17 shall wander whose names were not written in the book of life. Do you see the connection there? So Revelation 13 describes the beast with seven heads, ten horns with the names of blasphemy that receives a deadly wound. The deadly wound is healed and then all the world wanders after the beast. And those whose names are not written in the book of, the, of life will worship this beast. Revelation 17.8 says this beast was, is not, and when it comes back, all those who dwell on the earth shall wonder those whose names are not written in the book of life. We're talking about the same power here. Do you see that? So Revelation 13 and Revelation 17 are talking about the same power. Now, what does that have to do with where we are today? Well, in Revelation 17, we're describing this beast that was, is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. Revelation 13 says this beast receives a deadly wound. The deadly wound is healed, and all the earth will wonder after the beast. Now, this isn't the biggest whiteboard in the world, but hey, we're going to use it and hopefully you'll be able to read it. What I'm going to do is divide Revelation 17 into three segments. Past, present, and future. According to Revelation 17, the beast that you saw was. So that's past, right? Presently, it is not. And what's going to happen in the future? It will ascend. It shall ascend. That's Revelation 17, verse 8. So, that's the initial understanding of past, present, and future. Now, In addition to that, in the future, according to Revelation 17, they that dwell on the earth shall wonder. So in the future, the earth shall wonder after the beast. And According to Revelation 17, 8, this beast will go into perdition. 
Okay. So that's future according to Revelation 17, verse 8. Now the question is, how do we define, prophetically speaking, what is past, present, and future? How do we know when the beast was, is not, and shall ascend? Well, there's a few clues because we've, we've seen that Revelation 13 and Revelation 17 are talking about the same power. And in Revelation 13, you have the deadly wound. <clears throat> and in Revelation 13, the deadly wound is healed, which allows this beast to ascend from um, the bottomless pit. Does that make sense? So the deadly wound is healed, and that allows this beast to ascend out of the bottomless pit. <clears throat> so, in Revelation chapter 13, the beast receives a deadly wound, the deadly wound is healed, and we're told that that beast had power for 1260 years until it received the deadly wound. Now, again, I'm making assumptions that you've studied the Bible and Adventist prophecy, but when did the 1,260 years come to an end and the deadly wound, when was it received? 1798. That's a very important point because 1798 becomes the dividing line then in Revelation 17 between the past and the present. So the beast was, then it is not, and it shall ascend. It received the deadly wound, which caused it to now be referred to in the past tense. Do you see that? You kill the beast, now it was, and it is not. And that happened in 1798. Okay? <clears throat> and in the future, the deadly wound will be healed. So, that's Revelation 17, verse 8, with respect to where we are right now. Now, this is where things get a little interesting. Going to verse 9, verse 9 says, Here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And verse 10 says, And there are seven kings. You know, some of the newer translations say, They also are seven kings. So the seven heads are seven mountains, and they're also seven kings, okay? And then this is where we continue in our understanding of past, present, and future. Verse 10 says, five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. So I'm going to continue here. I'm going to erase a couple of things here. <clears throat> so with respect to past, present, and future, in the past, five are fallen. You see how that works? Five are fallen. One is. The other is not yet come. You see that? So, <clears throat> we have, by comparison in Revelation 13, shown what is past, present, and future by saying the beast was, is not, and shall ascend based on the fact that it received the deadly wound in 1798, and we see that five 
kings, or five heads are fallen by 1798, one presently is after 1798, and sometime in the future one will come or shall ascend, or one, one of the heads has not yet come. And according to Revelation 17, the five heads could also be described as five mountains. And then there's, or seven mountains, I'm sorry, there's five mountains here, the sixth mountain is here, and the seventh mountain is here. Do you see that? Now, in the Bible, what is a mountain? According to Daniel chapter 2, remember, the stone comes and hits the image and becomes a great mountain, and it fills the whole earth. And what was that great mountain that filled the whole earth? It was God's everlasting kingdom. So a mountain in Scripture represents a kingdom. And Jeremiah 51, 24, and 25, you can write that down, also describes a mountain as a kingdom. Now, some people have said these seven mountains or hills are the seven hills that the city of Rome sits upon. The issue with that is, is that there's a number of cities that sit on seven hills, San Francisco being one of them. So, you've got to be careful when you jump to conclusions about what the seven hills or the seven mountains are. And biblically speaking, if we are internally consistent with the Bible, with Daniel and Revelation, a mountain simply represents a kingdom. And it mentions specifically that the woman sits on these mountains or on these kingdoms. So these mountains, again, represent the political arm that gives support to the religious arm. Now, you may be asking, okay, so what are these five that are fallen um, these five kings that are fallen, one that is and one that has not yet come. Well, what kingdoms, if a mountain is a kingdom that supports the woman that sits upon it, what kingdoms throughout the history of earth have supported the religious arm of Babylon? That's the question. And if you look through history, and if you look simply at Revelation chapter 17 and in the books of Daniel and Revelation, the prophetic kingdoms that are relevant to the religious and political elements of Babylon start with Babylon. Because Daniel chapter 2 describes the sequence of kingdoms from the time of Babylon to the end of time. And Revelation does the same thing. Now, how do I know that? If you look at Revelation 13, the beast that has seven heads and ten horns, it's a composite beast that has a leopard, a bear, and a lion, which are symbolic of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. So it would only make sense to start where Revelation and Daniel start, with the ancient kingdom of Babylon. So these were the kingdoms that provided support for the woman to sit upon. So Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, and papal Rome, or Christian Rome. So up to 1798, the five kingdoms that have supported the woman are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, papal Rome, up to 1798. The question then is, what is the sixth kingdom that provides support for the woman, and what will the seventh kingdom be? That's what we are looking at as far as what is relevant, oh sorry, 
what is relevant in light of today's prophecy. If you look at the book of Revelation, you'll notice that Revelation 13 and 17 have a lot of connection to each other. And in Revela- we've already seen that the first beast of Revelation 13 is the same as the beast of Revelation 17. Seven heads, ten horns, full of the name of blasphemy. Now, is there another beast in Revelation 13? Yes, there is. There is a second beast, a lamb-like beast that comes up out of the earth, and it looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. By definition, a beast is a kingdom in Bible prophecy, and just as the first beast receives the deadly wound and passes off the scene, you have a second beast or a kingdom that comes on the scene to replace it. And it just so happens that in 1798, Western Europe recognized the United States as a sovereign nation, and so the United States is the sixth kingdom. Now, you may be asking, how does the United States provide a place for Babylon to sit upon? How does the United States as a political kingdom support Babylon after 1798? I thought this was the land of religious liberty and freedom where we can worship and speak as we freely choose. Well, remember, in 1844, the Protestant churches rejected the message of the Advent teaching, and they became part of the fallen churches of Babylon. That's why Revelation 17 describes Babylon as the mother of harlots, because there are daughter churches that are following after her. And so, the fallen Protestant churches in the United States have provided a seat for Babylon after 1798. So, that is where we are right now. And of course, God has His people in every church. That's why we are called to give a message to say, come out of her, my people. Those are God's people. And it's a worldwide message, and it's a loving message. And the most loving thing we can do is to tell them this is what the Bible says because Jesus loves you. The worst thing we could do is to say, well, we don't want to hurt their feelings, so we're not going to say anything to them. So, This is where we are presently speaking. Now, in the future it says, the other is not yet come, and when he cometh, he must continue a short space. Now, I want to say a few things about the heads and and everything. There are some Adventist teachers who have started the seven heads with Egypt and Assyria. They're good men. They mean well. It's not a salvational issue. But I, if you study Daniel and Revelation, you won't find anywhere else in Daniel and Revelation where Egypt and Assyria have anything to do, prophetically speaking, as a kingdom. They were kingdoms, but they weren't part of the prophetic picture. Some people say that the sixth head is Christian, Christian Rome in its wounded state. The problem I have with that understanding is, according to Scripture, the beast that was at this time is not. So if it is not, it can't still be. That doesn't make sense. It either is or it is not. And if you're saying it is but it is not, you're saying that Scripture contradicts itself. So it would only make sense that whatever the sixth head is, it's not Christian Rome in its wounded state. Because when it's wounded, it's not just wounded, it's dead. 
and it has to have a resurrection in the future. So that's a point of clarification because there's some good Adventist scholars who teach that the sixth head is Rome in its wounded state, and that doesn't make them a bad person. I just don't see how that you would be able to explain that in a logical manner. Now, in the future, this is what we have. The beast of Revelation 17, verse 8, is going to ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. The seventh head is going to come and will continue a short space. And in verse 11, we see the beast that was and is not. Even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goeth into perdition. Now, notice this. Revelation 17.8 makes it very clear that the beast that was, is not, and ascends is the beast that goes into perdition. Revelation 17.11 says, the eighth which is of the seven goes into perdition. So when you have the seven, you also have the eighth, and whatever the eighth is, is the same as the beast that was and is not, and ascends out of the bottomless pit. Do you see that? The beast that received the deadly wound and comes up out of the bottomless pit and goes into perdition is the same as the eighth, which is of the seven that goes into perdition. It's the same thing. So, the question then is, we've identified this beast that shall ascend as the same thing as the beast that received the deadly wound. We're talking about papal Rome here. When it comes back, it's the eighth, which is of the seven. So who is the seventh that will come in the future? That's the question. So, the seventh head will continue for a short space. Now, here's what some other well-meaning people do. They say that the seven heads are seven popes. (laughs) Now, here's the problem with that. Again, the seven heads are described as seven kings. And if you look at Daniel 7, a king is a kingdom. Look at Daniel 7.17. The seven heads are also described as seven mountains, and a mountain is a kingdom. A pope is not a kingdom. So people say, well, the deadly wound was healed in 1929, and if you count from there, the sixth pope is John Paul II, and the seventh pope, Benedict, that means a short space, and so the eighth, which is of the seven, that must mean that John Paul II is going to get resurrected. People actually believe that stuff. Um, but that doesn't, that's not consistent with what the Bible teaches about what a king and a mountain represents in Bible prophecy. A king and a mountain in Bible prophecy is a kingdom. So we want to know who the seventh kingdom will be that when you have the seventh, and here's the thing to, to realize The eighth, which is of the seven, is the same as the beast that was and is not and comes back to life. It's number eight because it can only exist again in a resurrected state. Or in other words, it can only exist again when the deadly wound has been healed when the seventh kingdom comes into place. So you can't have eight until you have seven. Does that make sense? So, in verse 12, it says, The ten horns, this is Revelation 17, The ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. 
Now, this is interesting. It says, so that you have ten horns, which are ten kings, but notice what it says. They have received no kingdom as yet. So, the ten horns are described as ten kings who have a kingdom. Notice it's singular. You see that? So, the ten horns, and this is where you have to, it says, here's the mind which hath wisdom. This is where you have to really concentrate. But the ten horns, which are ten kings, are not in the same sense kings as the first six kings. They are ten horns, which happen to represent kings who will have one kingdom that will continue for a short space. So, the seventh head is a global kingdom. If you look through Scripture, the number 10 represents a global totality. That's why you have 10 commandments. It's interesting, when you look at the image in Daniel 2, you have 10 toes, and that's when the stone strikes the image. So, you have 10 horns, which represent 10 kings who have no kingdom as yet. That's in the future. But sometime in the future, you will have a global power that has a kingdom. And what does this global power who receives a kingdom, what do they do? Notice they, they receive power as kings one hour with the beast. Who's the beast? The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit or the eighth, which is of the seven. And what do they do? It says, notice, these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. So, this is interesting. What happened in 1798? The Pope got taken captive, and Papal Rome lost its political power. It went from being a po religious political power that used the civil arm to control how people re worshipped religiously, and they lost that power in 1798. But in the future, the kings of the earth will commit fornication with this power by giving their power and strength to the beast. Now, what does that mean? That means the kings of the earth will give their political power back to papal Rome, and that means the deadly wound will be healed. So, when is the deadly wound healed? In the future, when the beast ascends out of the bottomless pit. Now, people try to say that the deadly wound was healed in 1929. I mean, you could say that maybe the process began at that point, but it will not be completely healed until the beast ascends out of the bottomless pit and the kings of the earth, or the seventh head, give their power and strength to the beast. That will be yet in the future. And yet, if you're paying attention and not ignoring the clear signs and focusing on the things of this earth, the pleasures of this life that really don't matter, if you're paying attention to the signs of the times, you will see that things are happening to bring the kings of the earth to to make them of one mind so that they can give their power and strength to the beast. Now, notice what happens in verse 14. When the seventh head gives its power and strength to the beast, that means you also have the eighth, which is of the seven, 
which means that now those who dwell on the earth are worshiping this beast, and they go into perdition, and all the world wonders after the beast. In verse 14, it says, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. So, notice, when this power when the beast unites with the kings of the earth and they come together with one mind, it's not a good thing. Why? Because they make war with the Lamb who is Jesus Christ. And from a human perspective, if the kings of the earth and a beast power are making war with the Lamb, humanly speaking, you would say, boy, they are going to take care of that Lamb in short order. But they don't realize who they're really fighting against. And so when the whole world comes together and says, wow, isn't it so great? We're all just coming together and we're putting aside all of our differences and we're just all following Jesus and it doesn't matter what we believe. We're just all going to do the same thing. Oh, and there's that one group of people. Come on, man. The Bible, that's so irrelevant. Give me a break. They are making war with the Lamb in the person of God's saints. And in Revelation chapter 12, we are told that God's saints, in verse 11, it says, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. And in Revelation 12, 17, we see that the dragon, who in Revelation 13, we see gave his power and authority to the beast who gets resurrected, the dragon was wroth with a woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So there is going to be a war in the future between the kings of the earth with Babylon, who are united with Babylon, against God's saints who keep the commandments of God. And in this battle, this is what's going to happen. Revelation 18 is going to happen. And in Revelation 18, while the kings of the earth are coming together with Babylon, God has His people who will give the message from heaven. And in verse 1 it says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. This is a message from heaven. It will lighten the earth with the glory of God. The glory will go to God, not to man. And if you wonder why this message has not occurred yet, it's because many of the preachers and teachers would take the glory and credit to themselves instead of giving the glory to God. It's like, wow, did you hear how I broke down Revelation 17 today? Man, that was powerful. But God is looking for people who will humbly teach the Word that will send the light of God's glory to the world that will point people to God and not to the speaker. And when that happens, the earth will be lightened with His glory. And notice what this message says. In verse 2, and he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of, their, of her fornication, and the kings of the earth, the seventh head, have committed fornication with her. And verse 4 says, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. 
that ye be not partakers of her sins and that ye receive not of her plagues. God is calling us to give a message to Babylon that calls His people out and into His last day remnant body because God has His people in every church. But at the very end of time, in order to keep those people, His people, He's got to keep them from receiving the mark of the beast. And in order to not receive the mark of the beast, you've got to come out of Babylon. And when God's message lightens the earth with its glory, people will then see, okay, this is the dividing line between truth and error. And those who have never heard these truths before will come out, and they will come into this message when this message is given with great power. You can see the same concept in Daniel 11, verses 44 and 45. It's interesting, if you look at history today, you can see history being fulfilled before our very eyes. I mean, even 20 years ago, I'm 32 now, I was thinking back when I was about 12 years old, you would hear a lot of things, but a lot of things have happened in the last 20 years that we thought would never happen. And in Great Controversy, page 605, we are told, heretofore those who presented the truths of the third angel's message have often been regarded as mere alarmists. Their predictions that religious intolerance would gain control in the United States, that church and state would unite to persecute those who keep the commandments of God, have been pronounced groundless and absurd. It has been confidently declared that this land could never become other than what it has been, the defender of religious freedom. But as the question of enforcing Sunday observance is widely agitated, the event so long doubted and disbelieved is seen to be approaching, and the third message will produce an effect which it could not have had before. So there is going to come a time when this message will have a powerful effect. Now notice, those who give the message, it says, as the time comes for the third angel's message to be given with greatest power, the Lord will work through humble instruments, leading the minds of those who consecrate themselves to His service. The laborers will be qualified rather by the unction of His Spirit than by the training of literary institutions. Now, there's nothing wrong with being trained by literary institutions, but at the same time, God is not dependent on the training of literary institutions to give the three angels messages. And there may be people who have three or five PhDs saying they have grave concerns about people who preach the truth with power, but that doesn't change the fact that the Holy Spirit is working for those who haven't had the same training as those with the five PhDs have. Now, there's also PhDs who are giving the truth of power, and I'm thankful for them. So, it's certainly, there's nothing wrong in and of itself to have higher education. But God is looking for people who in the last days will study our prophetic message, who will be excited about our prophetic identity, who will share it in a powerful way with all those around us, so that when these things take place, as we move into the future of Revelation 17, as the kings of the earth come together to unite with Babylon, that God's people will rise up and through the power of the Holy Spirit give the three angels' messages with power so that the earth will be lightened with the glory of God. And my prayer for Advent Hope is that we will continue to uplift the Word of God, to proclaim the message for our time, 
to uplift the three angels' messages because that is the message that God has given to us that will help Him through His people to finish this work here on this earth. And I pray that each one of us here will be faithful to every word of the Bible, to the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy, and to give the message faithfully and with power. May we close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this message. We thank you for how you have revealed to us what will take place presently and in the future in the books of Daniel and Revelation. May we have understanding. May we be humble. May we share this truth with love and with power. May we not do so in a way that would bring disrepute to our characters, but to do so in a way that represents the love and character of Christ. Thank you so much for all that you've blessed us with. Give us a good Sabbath day now. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.